You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3. I was scheduled to preach today or, and finish up 1 Peter. But in light of what has been going on in our, in our nation, um, uh, the protests that have taken place uh, all, over, all over the nation, cities like Oakland, our own city, San Francisco, um, New York, and cities all over, and what, with what's been going on in our community this last couple of weeks, um, mourning the loss of a, of a dear friend and part of our church, um, I felt compelled to launch into our Advent series a week early. We were doing last week. But we were doing a thing on Monday night, and a lot of you were there, and at the Monday night Advent service that we had last week, um, as we were doing that, I was like, man, this is like one of my favorite times of the year, not Christmassy type things, that's okay, but Advent, like longing, this longing for God to come back and make all things new. And I, I think it's so fitting right now with everything that's going on, I mean, just this last week on the news, watching the second grand jury decision and then everything that was going on and watching the news and seeing my, like my wife cry as she's watching the news and like, why, 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 why is this happening? And, um, and that longing of like that mixed with the loss of her friend, like all, all this, this stuff comes up during this season. Um, and that's what Advent does. It should, it should cause you to bring up all this stuff that's like, why isn't everything right yet? When will everything be made new? When will we actually have peace on earth? Like, when, when, when? And that's what Advent is, the season of the church entering into that. So I want to jump into it a week early. I owe you a sermon on the devil, because that's how First Peter ends. So um, I promise that there will be a sermon on the devil soon. Um, let me start by reading today's texts um, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, 22. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. And a line from a very well-known Christmas carol or Christmas hymn. Let me read and then I'll pray. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken, been taken. And he drove the man out, and he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, 
and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls in your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father, and we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are your, pe- we are your people. Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly, lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Thou dayspring come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into a season, a time of posturing our hearts of, of waiting, of longing, I pray that you would call to every human heart and soul here that longing for your presence, that longing for you, God. And I ask that our longing would make and find its fulfillment in you, Lord. I pray that you would give us a measure of grace and a measure of faith today to receive um, your word and to see and to receive, God, what you're doing in the world. And so I ask, God, that you would um, so use me this morning and anoint me that I could stand before um, people and your people and, God, that we would be mutually encouraged and our eyes would be enlightened, and our hearts would rejoice in the coming King. Come, Emmanuel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the themes of Advent, uh, one of the themes in the Bible, is the theme of exile and longing for home. One of the themes of Advent and the themes of the Bible is exile and longing for home. Actually, there's a very famous scholar by the name of N.T. Wright who has written extensively arguing that, the, that exile, the theme of exile, is the theme of the entire Bible. Exile is not just a theme, but he argues through many of his writings, I mean huge, huge, huge writings of books, that exile is the theme of the entire Bible. Regardless, exile is a major theme in the Bible. It's been called an intercanonical theme, an intercanonical theme. And what an intercanonical theme is, is a thread throughout the scriptures that connects the storyline of both the Old and New Testaments. It's a thread that ties the Old and New Testaments together. So it starts somewhere in Genesis 1 through 3, and it ties all the way into Revelation 21 and 22. So you can look at this theme of exile and longing for a home and trace it from our text reading today in Genesis 3 and trace it all the way through Genesis and the rest of the five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. You can trace it through the historical books and through the importance of the land of Israel. Eventually, they find exile again. You can trace it through the longings and the songs and the wisdom literature. You can hear it in the hopes and the cries of the prophets, as we read today from Isaiah. You see the theme of exile and longing finally climax in Jesus Christ. And you see the restoration and the fulfillment the, the, the longing and the exile finally resolved completely in Revelation 21. The theme of longing and exile is a thread that ties the whole Bible together. 
But what makes this theme of exile so unique, and what I like about this theme of exile and why I want to preach on it this morning, is because everyone, no matter who you are or what religious affiliation you have or religious background, or if you're one of what sociologists are calling the nuns, like you don't have any religious affiliation, no matter where you're at, all of us feel this one. All of us feel this theme. This theme of exile, no matter who you are, we all feel it. Uh, Existentialists call it alienation. The feeling of being detached from the world, estranged from people or society or the universe. I mean, for this theme of exile, there is an atheistic philosophical language for feeling it because we all feel it, no matter if you believe in God or not. We all feel it. And there's this whole system, this whole vein of philosophy that does not even believe in God. That goes, there is this thing called alienation. There is this thing that we are not really at home in this world. There is this feeling. There is this longing. There is something that's there. And they've put language to it. It's not just an intercanonical theme. It's not just a theological subject. It's a feeling that we live with, no matter who you are. Or you can probably say, because it's an intercanonical theme, we feel it. Because it's so true from Genesis all the way to Revelation, all of humanity, no matter who you are or where you're from, we all feel this one. It's an experience of feeling exiled. It's the feeling of, it's the experience of feeling that we're not at home, that this world is not really our home. It's feeling betrayed by the world. It's like the whole subplot of Interstellar. I hope that I didn't give that away, but... We're not at home here. This world's turned against us. And what is home? I'm not necessarily talking about your home as a child because some of us might have come from a broken home, a home that have never felt safe at all or secure there. No matter if you came from a secure home where you love home and this time of the year you're going home for the holidays and you can't wait for the smell of your mom's cooking again, whatever, or you're like, I hate this time of the year because my house was never a home, no matter what what background you're from, still, doesn't matter, still, there is this deep, deep, deep sense that we want home, even if we've never experienced a true home. And what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is, uh, I need you to stay with me on this, this might be weird. What I'm talking about is a memory. And it's a memory of a place you may have never been, but you remember it. Home is a memory of a place that you may have never been. You may have never grown up in a great home that felt homey or homely or homey. I think homey is the right word. Never felt like this presence of like, oh my gosh, the home. Never. But you still remember it. It's still like this echo. You remember it and you long for it, even if you've never had it. A couple of years ago, a neurosurgeon wrote a book called The Proof of Heaven, and I've quoted from it a couple times at this church, and not... And and since this book came out, a lot of people have written debunking his, the author's claims. But that doesn't really matter to me as much as the, to answer the question, and I asked the question of this book, why? Why was this book on the New York Times bestsellers list for 97 weeks in a row? It's not a Christian book at all. So Christians weren't necessarily buying this up. Why is there such an interest in this topic in a secular age? Why? Why is there such an interest in this topic? In this book, the author describes heaven as a memory of home, but not a memory of a home that he's ever been into or he thinks he has. He doesn't think he's been there. It says this. This is how he describes heaven. 
Uh, it was like when your parents take you back to a place where you spent time as a very young child. You don't know the place, he says. I didn't know the place. Or at least I, I, I think, you think you don't know. But as you look around, something pulls at you and you realize that part of yourself, a part deep down, way deep down, does remember the place after all and is rejoicing at being back there again. He describes heaven as this place that he's never been, or at least he thinks he's never been there, but when he gets there, it's strangely familiar. He's like, I, I was there, and he describes memory, heaven as a memory of a place he has never been before, but something familiar pulls at him, and he does remember, though he's never been, and he's rejoicing at being back there again. What is that? What is that? Why do existential philosophers say that we are not at home in the world and a neurosurgeon describing heaven as some faint memory of being home. That's why he says, my parents were there and I was there as a child. Like he, why, why do existential philosophers say we don't feel at home here, but then when, when a neurosurgeon who's not really a believer makes it to heaven, he's like, it's kind of like being home, though I've never been there, but I, it's familiar. Why? Why this? Why this knowledge, the feeling of not being at home, but at the same time, this longing for home, this longing for true rest? Here's why. All of us, every single one of us, are haunted by shalom. All of us, every single Christian, non-Christian, no matter what religious background you do, if you just like, just practice yoga or you're like far from, like whatever it is, you're just spiritual or you're not religious or whatever it is, every single one of us is haunted by the peace of God, whether you know it or not. Actually, you know it. You might not admit it, you would never admit it to me because you're like, I wouldn't concede that to you, but all of us are haunted by this idea of peace, not just the absence of war, but like Hebraic peace, which was like the peace and presence and nearness of God and everything was in order and everything was perfect. We all are haunted by true rest. All of us are haunted by true peace. We're all haunted by grace. We're haunted by true love. We're haunted by a true home and we long for it. We long for it. We long for it in our protests. What are we truly protesting when we protest? We are saying with a lot of other people, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We long for it even in our riots, whether our riots are on the street or at home on Facebook. All of us, whatever it is that we do, we all long for this. And and the only reason, the only reason we can say that's not the way it's supposed to be The only way that you could stand at a place and see injustice and see something go down and go, that is not the way it's supposed to be. The only way any, any, any person can do that is because we all have a collective memory of the way it was supposed to be. We all go, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, how do you know? Because I know, like deep, deep, deep down in my bones, I think I remember. I think I remember. There's something about my the way I was coded, that remembers the way it was supposed to be, and this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we long and we ache. This is why when people die, we mourn. We, we mourn people when we lay them in the ground, we're like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why we mourn at funerals and we just ex- are so excited about birth. Because that's the way it's supposed to be. And we're never to be separated from someone else. That's not the way it was supposed to be. No one has to teach us that. No one, we were born with that. We're born clinging to our moms. We're born clinging for that. We are born with this. It's in us. We're haunted by home, our true home. 
And what we remember, the collective memory, can be traced all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Well, how, how's that? How can it all be traced back to right before we read chapter 3? How can it be traced back to Genesis 1 and 2? Because Genesis 1 and 2 are our true home. That's our true home. And it wasn't our true home because of the location. I don't know where the Garden of Eden is. No one has found it yet. Somewhere, I think, maybe. I don't know. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you might know where it is. I don't know. We haven't found it yet. It's not, but it's not necessarily a location. That, it, it, it's not the location. It wasn't the Garden of Eden that made it our true home. It wasn't the location. It wasn't a place that haunts our memory. It's a presence that haunts our memory. It wasn't being in the Garden of Eden. It was being with God in the Garden of Eden. See, what haunts us is being with God. There was a time that we were with God and everything was right. We were with our true creator, our true father. We were with him at home. And now we're not, and that haunts us. Genesis 1 and 2 is about heaven and earth and that being one. That's what it's about. It's about God who dwells in heaven and resides in heaven, created earth and resided on earth, and heaven and earth were one. And they were together and they were united. And it's interesting when you read the scriptures, heaven, uh, heaven's counterpart isn't hell. Like, well, heaven and hell. No, it's earth. You type in heaven and hell like in a word search in the Bible and you won't find any mentions. It's heaven and earth. Heaven and earth were to be together. Heaven and earth consume the, 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 the language of the first five books of the, of the Bible. It's actually the whole Bible. Heaven and earth together. God dwelling with us. This place was perfect because God was with us. And because we were with God, we experienced true peace. We experienced home, true, naked, unashamedness, truly. We were naked and unashamed. True rest, true peace, true love, true justice. All the stuff that we hope for around Christmas, all the stuff we long for this season. And we all long for it and we all remember it because we, were all, we all had it at one time at home with God in the garden. And that is what haunts us. But then, Genesis 3, the rebellion of man happens. I've been thinking about the fall. It's called the fall of man. I've been thinking about Genesis 3 for a very long time. I'm not, well, I'm not super old, so um, kind of a long time. And what I know now of Genesis 3, and this, I mean, it changes and gets more open as I, um, and more beautiful as, as, as I study this text. But what I know now, what, what the fall of man is all about, the sin underneath all the sin in Genesis chapter 3 from Adam and Eve, is a lack of trust in God to provide the good. That was it. It wasn't about like, it was, it, was, it was a lack of trust in God to provide what's good. See, good is such an important word in Genesis 1 and 2. God created it and he saw it was good and it was good and it was good and it was good and it was good. And that like language poetically keeps rolling in Genesis 1 and 2. And then you get to Adam and Adam was created and he was like, oh, that's not good. Like, what's not good? Well, Adam's alone. That's not good. Well, I... What do you mean? I'm, not, I'm, I'm with you, God. I'm, so that's good. Well, no, you need, you need someone like you, but opposite. I'm going to create Eve, and he does, and now that's good. And everything's good, and God plants a good tree in the garden and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's good, but they're not supposed to eat from it. Don't eat from it. Just trust me. I know what's good for you. And then they're tempted to eat it, and when Eve grabs the apple, she says, oh, it's good for the sight and good to eat. It's good. Like, wait, wait, wait. I thought God determines what's good. No, I am. I will be like God, and I will determine what's good for myself. I don't need God to tell me what's good. I know what's good. I don't need you to tell me what's good. This is how she was tempted. And so she eats it, and they realize there is a knowledge of good and evil. 
And they are like God. And they saw that they were naked and they hid. Adam and Eve were tempted to choose what was good for themselves to be like God and not trusting in God to provide what was good. And our reading today in Genesis 3 is a reading of the consequences of that. It's called exile. Sin, rebellion, separates. We know this. If you're married, if you're in any sort of relationship, work relationship, any other, any relationship, sin separates, doesn't it? Doesn't it make a distance between you and the other person? When someone sins against you, you don't just go, oh, you sinned against me, I love you so much, and you like give them, like you don't want the, the space to, to, to get closer, you want to get further away, and sin like detaches you. Some people sin, and because of their sin, they run away. I don't want to get caught. I'm running away, I'm quitting this job, I'm moving the city, I'm leaving this place. And they run away, separation. Some people get caught in sin and are put away in prison. Sin separates always. Humanity sins and they're separated from the life of God. They're exiled out, they're out to wander and then God has to make them skins to protect them. And they're out there alone. One commentator writes this about the verdict of their sin. He says in... um, in this, about Genesis chapter three, he says, the verdict of death consisted of being cast out of the garden, exiled. And the barren and, the, and barred from the tree of life, cut off from the protective presence of the community of, uh, with God in the garden. Listen to this. Ironically, when the human race, who had been created like God in the image of God, Imago Dei, sought to be like God, they found themselves, after the fall, no longer with God. Their happiness does not consist of their being like God so much as it does their being with God. They were already created like God. Do you want to be like God and know good from evil? All Eve had to say, or all Adam had to say at that moment was like, "Um, I'm already created like God. Thank you very much. And that would have been the end of it. And then none of this stuff. It would have just ended right there. It would have been awesome. But you know you would have done the same thing. We do the same thing all the time. We do the same same thing every day. I will choose what's good for myself. I don't trust you to provide what's good. There's no way I can trust you. And then what the consequences are is that we think we're our own gods, our own masters, our own rulers. But really, you were already created like God. What the biggest, saddest, most heartbreaking part of it is that your happiness consists of being with God. And that's what we lost. See, the prototype for all exile found in our human experience, whether we call it alienation or being homesick, starts here in Genesis 3, where we once had been with God and now we're living east of Eden. Exile is a theme that runs throughout all of the scriptures. Exile is a theme that we long for a true home and it can be traced all the way through to Jesus. Noah is exiled. God has to judge the earth and recreate everything. He does it out of mourning. He doesn't do it out of wrath. He judges the earth and he's regretful. He's saddened and he has to recreate it and he recreates it with water just like it was in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and without void and water was over the face of the deep and all the flood was was a recreation of the whole earth again. And then the ark is like uh, Noah being exiled from the earth and floating around this like uh, surrogate earth, surrogate land and the animals are there and he's just floating around And then he recreates the earth again, and Noah's there. But Noah does the same thing as Adam does. Noah eats the fruit and becomes naked, just like Adam. Noah gets drunk off the wine, and then gets naked. 
And then if you're reading it, you're like, oh, isn't that kind of like what Adam did? He like ate the fruit and he's like, I'm naked. That's exactly what Noah did. And what's the whole point of that is like the sin is still in the human heart. Like you can do, every, God can do all that and God's like, sin's still, in, still there. And so God calls out a people and Abraham is exiled. He's like, leave your home and go where I tell you. You're gonna be exiled from your home, but I will make you a home. But then he wandered. And he finally gets into the home, but then he has sons and his son Jacob is exiled because he sins and he lies to his dad and he runs to Laban's house and he's exiled there and he finally comes back and then everyone's together again, but then everyone's exiled to Egypt and then the Torah ends with exile in Egypt and then they cry out because they're enslaved in Egypt and they cry out for a deliverer and then Moses is raised up to bring them out of exile into into their promised land. So they leave And they're just told, just like Adam and Eve were, trust me for what's good. And they leave and they say, we'll trust you, God. We'll obey you, God. We'll do anything. And then they do. And then they get to the border where they're supposed to cross over in the promised land. They get scared. They're like, they're like, we're, they're like, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants. And God's like, don't you trust me? They're like, no, we don't trust you, God. Why did you lead us out of here? Why did you take us out of Egypt? We, at least we had things to eat there. And so they're judged again and exiled, wandering in the wilderness where they finally get into the land, finally again into the land, but they don't fully get into the land. And they said once they got into the land, we will obey you, but they don't obey him. And so they're exiled again in Babylon. Again, they're exiled. And in exile in Babylon, that's where all the prophets are writing, God, take us back. One day we'll be at home with you and the lion will lay with the lamb and there will be no more sickness and righteousness will fill the earth. And then they get back in, but it's not, it's not that. They finally get back into the land, and if you read the scriptures through Ezra, they get back in, but it's not the same. They still have rulers and oppressors over them. Rome eventually is over them, and then Jesus. Then Jesus enters in, and Jesus enters in as the people of God are crying out in Advent, come, Lord, would you bring us home? Would you heal our exile? We, are, we have been an exiled people since Genesis 3, and Israel's a type of all of humanity, always wandering, never truly at home, never truly obeying, always wanting to, longing for it, don't know how to get in. That's Israel's whole story. And then Jesus. And what's interesting about Jesus is that Jesus was born in exile. Jesus was born on the road. He lived, his family lived in Galilee, and they had to go to Bethlehem for a census. The beginning of Luke starts like this. And they get to Bethlehem. As soon as they pull into town, Mary, a teenager, goes into labor with Jesus. And then there's no room. You guys know the story. There's no room in the end. In the inn. They go like from hotel to hotel, house to house. No one, every, everyone shuts their door in their face. And so they go to a filthy manger, a filthy feeding trough. And Jesus is born in this disgusting place. Don't like, I know we, we're, we're going to make a cute video. We're going to show it next week. And it's so cute. And Jesus is born and like a, on a clean stage and it's awesome and there's like nice hay, all that stuff, okay? But that's not the way it was. Jesus was exiled. He was born in exile. He was born in a feeding trough. And then right after that, an angel warned Joseph saying, flee to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill you. And so you know where Jesus grows up as a kid, as a boy? In Egypt. He flees And he lives in exile. What is this all saying? You know what this is saying? Jesus, in every way we can imagine, is born in exile. He has experienced. He is a man of sorrows. And he took on the fullness of what it means to be human, which means what it means to be alienated. What it means to, in his incarnation, he felt fully what it means to be outside. 
not to have a home. When Jesus was an adult, several times Jesus says in an adult, um, foxes have uh, dens and the birds of the air have net, uh, nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, I'm an exile, I'm homeless. And then Jesus was killed. He was murdered. He was crucified. And the texts say that he was crucified outside of the city gates. He wasn't crucified inside Jerusalem. He was crucified outside. He was crucified outside, exiled from the city, condemned as a, as, as a heretic, and crucified outside the city. And as he was dying on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was alienated from the relationship of God the Father, the worst and the darkest exile that any human can ever go through. Jesus steps in as proto-human, born in exile, lived in exile, crucified in exile, and then felt in the fullest, deepest way our exile from God. Why did Jesus do all of this? We sing it every year. Mild, he lays his glory by. He laid his glory of God by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Jesus laid his glory by, took on the exile of humanity, was born in the world, born in exile, lived as an exile, died as an exile, was ultimately exiled from God, all for to give us second birth. The Apostle Peter, we just finished this book, kind of, almost. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that last point is so good, to bring you to God. Christ also suffered once for sins, the, unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, to bring you home. He was exiled so that we can come home truly to God, that we can be brought back into the presence of God, that we can truly and in a, in a, in a real way be brought into loving relationship with God once again, that our true home does not consist of the Garden of Eden necessarily or being with God. That is true home. Julian Barnes, um, who's a writer, wrote a memoir called Nothing to be Frightened of, where he wrestles with mortality as a secular person, an atheist, really. He's a professed atheist, and he wrestles with mortality as an atheist, as someone who doesn't believe in God. He tries to write and find language to explain and deal with death in his memoir. These are like secularized meditations on death, you can say. And his book opens like this. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. What is that? That is our human longing for home with God. This is someone who was, had the courage enough to put it on paper as an atheist. I don't believe in him, but I miss him. What is that? What is that longing there, though I, I can't rationally wrap my mind around that there is a God or why there's a God or anything like that, and if he is a God, is he good or bad or evil or what? What is that? I don't know, but I miss him. I know that emotionally, deep, deep down, I miss God. I miss home. I know that I'm not at home in this world. I know that. Psalm 91 says, 
God, it seems you've been our home forever. Long before the mountains were born, long before you brought earth itself to birth, from once upon a time to kingdom come, you are God. See, God is our home, and we remember that. All of us remember that. Here's the good news about exile. Here's the good news about the feeling of being exiled. I know that, that's, that, that, that longing is like, it hurts. There's an ache there. But let me, can I just alert you to the good news, the possibility of our exile, our, our, our human longing for home, the good news, the bright side of it. Here's the bright side. Peter Kreft, a professor of philosophy at Boston College, says in his book on, on reflections of heaven, he, he writes a book, if, if um, uh, Julian Barnes reflected on death, uh, Peter Kreft reflects on heaven. And in his book on reflections of heaven, he writes this, our way home is found in the center of our exile. Our way home is found in the center of our exile. What does he mean by that? What Peter Kreft is saying is that our exile, the feeling, the I miss him, that feeling causes us to seek a true home. It says, I'm not at home in this world and that should alert us that a home can be found. If we all have that experience, if we all have this feeling of I miss him, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and we all cry out justice, if we all cry out peace, then there, there should have been a time where we remembered that. There should, it should point to a time where that was a reality, that was true, it should point to that. It should point to the fact that one can be found. C.S. Lewis, in his letter to his friend Sheldon, and uh, Sheldon writes this princess letter in his book, A Severe Mercy. Um, C.S. Lewis, Sheldon was not a Christian when he was writing this. Um, but um, he, was, he was talking to C.S. Lewis, who was a former atheist himself, about God, and he was, Sheldon was just having um, a moment where he's talking about time and how time lapses and how, like, I want moments to last forever, but they don't. What is that? Where is that coming from? And C.S. Lewis writes this to him. Does being hungry prove that we have bread? This is C.S. Lewis. Though it doesn't prove that one particular man will get food, it does prove that there is such thing as food. Do you guys get that? Of course you do. You're smart. If we are a species that d- didn't normally eat, weren't designed to eat, would we feel hungry? If you really are a product of materialistic universe, how is it that you don't feel at home here? What he's saying is that the longing that you have for eternity The longing that you have for moments to last forever, the longing that you have, and eventually Sheldon's wife would die, and C.S. Lewis's wife died as well, that longing that you're like, you don't want to be separated from someone ever, and there's a pain and a loss there that when it does happen, should alert you to something. If that, if if there was home, then you should probably, if if there is a hunger, there's food. If there is a longing for eternity, if there is a longing for home, there is one. If we long for something, collectively, and almost universally long for something, doesn't that prove it's out there? If I don't believe in God, but I miss him proves anything, it proves that our longing for home in God is a real thing. And it is a real thing. See, God made us for himself and has so arranged our exile, Genesis 3, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. 
God made us for himself, and he arranged our exile to be where our hearts are restless until they find home in God. Your heart is restless until it finds home in God. There's a story that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 15. It's traditionally called the prodigal son or the lost son. And it's a story about two sons that grew up, and one of them, the younger son, was like, had a wild hair and asked God, like, asked his father, I want all of my inheritance now. I wish that you were dead. I want to leave home. And he leaves home. He leaves home. And he wasted what was given to him. And there's this moment where he, he wasted everything. He had nothing left. And he's eating um, with the pigs. And it says he longed, he longed for just a morsel of what the pigs were eating. This is like, this is this, is this Holy longing right here. He longed for nourishment. And he would, if, even if it came from the pigs, he wanted it. He had this deep, deep hunger. And then it says he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and he says, if I went home, bare minimum, I'd be treated like a servant. Bare minimum, I would be a slave in my dad's house and I would get food. I would get to be home. Even if I was not a son anymore, even if I took my inheritance and I was not accepted back, if I went home and he comes to his senses and he starts to head home and the, one of the best lines in the, in the New Testament is, and while he was still a long way off. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and he ran to him and he tackled him and he kissed him and he put his robe on him and he put sandals on his feet and he took off his ring, and he put his ring on his finger. And he comes home. And this is not just a story of one who grew up in the church with the knowledge of God. This is not like if you're here, like, well, I grew up in the church. And I'm, it's not just that. This can be any one of us. Any one of us. If, even if we didn't grow up in church. With a haunting memory of home with God. With a haunting memory of if there's got to be a home. There's got to be a place, even if I got in and I was just a, a, a servant there, it'd be better than this. And that true home is with the Father, with God. And I hope that your mind would be just open right now. I hope that you would come to your senses and see. And that the love of God pursued you. And what we celebrate during Advent is Emmanuel, God with us. God taking that initiative and coming after us. See, all of us want things new. All of us long for the day when we're home with God again. All of us do. Most of Revelation, the book of Revelation, I don't understand. I don't even like reading it because this confuses me. But I get the end. I get the beginning and I get the end. The middle is so scary. I don't understand it. I don't think I'll ever teach on it. The middle. <laughs> beginning and end, maybe. But I get the end. I think we all get the end. You read to the, isn't it fascinating how the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a garden city? It starts with peace and being with God, and this is how it ends. We all know this. We all know this. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. What is that? That is ultimate Emmanuel. That is what we hope for in Advent. We celebrate in Advent the first coming of Jesus, but we still long, we still ache, we still hope 
for that day when God will come to this earth and make this earth truly our home. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. One day, Jesus, this is what we hope for, Jesus will come back and make this earth our true home. This will truly be our home, like for real. And he'll wipe every tear from our eye and he'll be with us. And that's what will make this place home, is that God is truly with us. Our true longing is to be at home with God. God with us, Emmanuel. That is what Advent is all about. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Sometimes I can preach my guts out and it just doesn't connect, but there's something visual that must connect. So there's a, what I want to do as we lead into worship is play, with you a, play for you a video that talks about this God that we long for and that will take us into a time of worship. God, we thank you. And I pray, God, that those that are that are a far way off would come home to Christ today, come back to Christ today, find our home in you, find our life in you, find all our joy in you, Jesus. And I pray this Advent season would be filled, would be filled with the hope that can only be found in life with God. In Jesus' name. I am the might before the sword, the tremors and the spear shaft. I craft my ways from blazes of firestorms, absorb the failings of deadened ends to render the floors I dance upon. I am the spaces between applause, the roars of hearts running through heaven's halls. I breathe the forms of light and silence, stall the course of cosmic riots. I am the glory of the giants Manaslu, Sagomatha, watchmen of the Asian plains. They yield my name, made famous through the cries of albatross flocks inflamed in Pacific fires. I am dressed in the spray of Nevada dunes. Clothed in the shadows of Sahara caves, I am the light of lunar flames, fleshing the rains of Amazonia. I paint the trains of Antarctic quests, release dominion to desert Panthera. I authorize the remains of Aztec and Inca that bloom through the visions of mountain tribes. I ride the skylines, breathe the signs, ignite the paths of astronomy's eyes. I am the unheard, heard in the storms that burn on my words. I am the yearned for, I am the word. I emerge deciduous from the wetlands of your cries, rise through the moments you wake. I bring the dawns that shake the fevers from your remembrance. I am here, I am imminent. I am he who crosses the plains through which you strayed, to 
discover the parts extinction seared I dust away the dried remains of tears drain the lakes of your regrets I wet the wells till the soil placate the toil quell the rages sow the broken pages with my belief in you I bring the you you have never quite met I am the desire that keeps your pillow wet I am the heartbeat you seek when you chase after dreams In the reachings and sighs you are looking for me In the body touching body it is me you seek In the groans and the longings it is me you seek In the yearning dream, in the need to be seen In the love me, love me it is me you seek In the breath drop wonders, gasping hunger In the touch of a stranger that makes you feel younger in the books and the fables in the this is me labels in the is this me is this me in the hear me hear me say my name in the touch me find me need me find me in the aching pain in the love the music the beats the taste in the heat and the need and the need for embrace in the color the gaze the meaning the desire in the flame of the voice and the spirit of the fire when you cry for more my name you weep I am he who waits for you to reach I reach for you and wait when you lie half broken and awake I am the watchman of your sleep I wait and wait till the shakings cease I am the truth they call release when the darkness flares and starts to speak, I sculpt the shades of daybreak. It is me you seek. <laughs>